Uh, if you're an adult, I, I'll give you a few instructions here before I introduce our speaker. Um, we are, uh, we're hopefully ahead of the game. If you are a person who uses a laptop or a tablet right now, you're welcome to go to our website because all of the PowerPoints that you see have already been uploaded onto our website under the Resources tab. And you can follow along by swiping or going through the PDF that you'll download. So if you uh, have a tablet, just go to the livinghopebible.org and under the Resources tab, all five sessions are already uploaded to our website in PDF format. So that way, in case you miss a note or whatnot. If you don't, then uh, I encourage you to take some notes and you can add it and download the PDFs later on. Uh, that'll make it easy. You can connect, there's free Wi-Fi connections here if you're uh, one of those users, okay? So, we wanna really uh, welcome uh, our speaker, uh, Kirby Anderson. I remember meeting him almost 20 years ago. It was almost 20 years ago when I was uh, sitting in seminary and hearing him speak and I thought to myself, my goodness, this guy is answering questions I never knew to ask. And uh, he would be able to uh, pull out, and I was greatly blessed at the time and have been greatly blessed since thereafter. He has been our retreat speaker back in, I think, 2002, as well as 2010, and now in 2016. And he also came in 2011 on a Sunday uh, to join us. And uh, over the years, he's uh, uh, been a speaker uh, that has been in demand around the country as well as internationally. There is his bio that you can look at, a brief bio on page four, but uh, it's very long, so we put the uh, Cliff Notes version there uh, about his uh, uh, works and books and uh, engagements. He is also an individual who's, who uh, speaks uh, and does a, uh, not only uh, probe ministries, I'll let him tell you a little about probe ministries what they do, which is where I first met him, um, but uh, he also does a radio program called Point of View, and it's very, very uh, challenging, I can imagine, when people who are strangers, you don't know where they're coming from, they call in, or they ask questions, or he has guests on his show that he interviews. It's one of these things that's very, very, you know, kind of like the uh, Christian form of Michael Medved, right? So it's, uh, I hope that uh, you'll enjoy the time and the things that he has to share. Uh, and uh, right afterwards, we're going to have a brief, if you have questions before our discussion, we'll have an open Q&A time that's a, a brief in case there has a slew of them. I think you'll enjoy the Q&A time as well. So be courageous, write down any questions you have as well, or you can ask them in public. All right, but let's give Kirby a warm welcome. Thank you, Joe. Well, hello to some of you that I've been here with before, but uh, I want to introduce myself to those of you that uh, have never met me, and we'll see if that uh, will work. Sometimes those uh, have to get a button like that pushed. Can everybody see that? There we go. Now you can hear me, too. And by the way, I'm going to prize this Olympic medal. I want you to know this is really, <laughs> this is going to be one of the highlights of my trip here. Um, Joe is always very good about introducing my wife, and I'm glad this time he did not because I wanted to have my wife, Suzanne, and notice what uh, colors she is wearing as she stands up here today. <laughs> <laughs> 
looks like a Seahawk, right? So I figured, you know, last time I was up here, the Seahawks had not won the Super Bowl. So things have changed dramatically up here. Last time the church was a little bit smaller, it's a lot bigger. So uh, Joe and I have known each other for a long time. He gets all sorts of comments, but he decided to invite me back anyway. So we're going to have some fun today. We're going to talk about bioethics this first hour, and I will try to end on time. As you mentioned, I'm a talk show host, so I know how to end on time. I can end on the second if I have to, but I think it's a little more flexible here in the camp setting. And as we get into this, uh, these are topics that Joe selected, and they're all real tough ones. You know, when you typically go to a retreat, you usually have some devotionals and, and some nice challenges, but these are tough topics. There is not one here that isn't a little bit uh, challenging, and so I recognize there may be some areas of comment and disagreement, and I'm a talk show host, and I'm used to that, and I go on to speak on college campuses. Matter of fact, we used to have a probe center at the University of Washington all those years, uh, so we have all sorts of uh, connection with that, so if you want to disagree or make comments. Also recognize when we get into this area of medical ethics, some of you are, have medical background, and you'd like to do this for the entire conference, turn it into a Christian and Medical Dental Society conference just on these issues. Some of you say, the only time I think about medicines, we have to go to the doctor once a year. So I'm going to try to hit a median part there, but try to give you some information that uh, would be helpful. And so let me give you a little bit of an overview of what I'd like to cover in just one hour. And I recognize we're really going to be moving through this fairly quickly. And if we have time at the end or even tonight, I'll tell you a little bit more about Probe and all the resources. I'm giving uh, both the pastors a whole set of books. Matter of fact, I'm going to have some of them this weekend so that if you say, I'd like to read a little bit more, I'm going to give those to them. You can borrow from them, or if you would like to order them, of course, you can do that as well. But the first thing I thought we would look at is uh, the whole issue of personhood and the beginning of life and how we deal with that. And so that would relate to everything from abortion to stem cell research. And so I'm going to talk about some of that briefly. Then we're going to look at personhood at the end of life. What about euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide? And then finally, we'll look at the area of bioengineering. And that would be things like genetic engineering and artificial reproduction. These are some topics we have addressed at the seminary. And oftentimes, Joe, what I get is some student who maybe was in pastoral ministries uh, 20 years ago that says, you know, I really wasn't paying attention when you were talking about uh, euthanasia. I have a, a couple coming into my home uh, in just a few minutes or coming into my study in just a few minutes, and they want to know whether or not to pull the plug. Now, remind me again what we talked about at that time. <laughs> Or I've got a couple that are infertile and they're thinking about in vitro fertilization. Well, what do we think about this again? And so I get those kinds of questions all the time. So these are not just hypothetical questions. If you're in ministry or you have friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members, some of these issues will be ones you will be dealing with as well. So I recognize that. And even though I'm going to try to do this in a somewhat objective academic way, I also recognize the pain that associates with some of that. So if you'll permit me as we go through this a lot quicker than we would if we had hours to cover, then those are my disclaimers. But let's get into this first area. Everybody see pretty well the personhood at the beginning of life. And uh, as Joe mentioned, if you have a laptop or a tablet, you can go on to your website right now and download all of these. If you say, well, I brought my laptop here, but I'm having trouble with Wi-Fi, come to me and I'll give you a flash drive, and you will have everything I put on the screen, and you can take it home and use it for your work. And so the first thing I want to talk about, obviously, is this issue of abortion. Let's use a, kind of a hypothetical for a minute. Imagine, you know, you have somebody that you know has just become a Christian, maybe over the last couple of weeks, and they've been eagerly reading their Bible, and finally they come up to you and they say, 
I've been reading my Bible, and I know that Christians are supposed to be pro-life, but I can't find any verses in the Bible that use the word abortion or anything. I know we're supposed to be against abortion, but I can't find any verses that really help me answer that question. Can you think of some of the verses you might use? And so what I want to do is kind of take you through that just for a few minutes, because you might say, well, let's look in the Old Testament first. And here we see in the book of Isaiah that Isaiah is reflecting upon God's call on his life. In Isaiah 49, verse 1, he says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. And so your friend says, well, okay, that's kind of interesting. You know, certainly he was named in his mother's womb. Well, it sort of implies that you're dealing with a human being in the womb. So certainly Isaiah 49.1 would be maybe an Old Testament passage you might use. Then you might have a new test, another Old Testament passage like maybe Jeremiah 1. Because here in Jeremiah 1, and by the way, you can be looking in your Bible, but I just am doing it real easy, but you know, you can follow along and double check all those verses as you go. Um, I'll put those on the screen. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew and before you were born, I consecrated you. Well, that kind of helps us a little bit with the foreknowledge of God, but also, again, it implies that something inside the womb, you know, before you even were born or while you were certainly being formed, God had care and concern for you. Probably the verse that a lot of you might be thinking of would be Psalm 139. Uh, this one is a verse where we know that David is reflecting on the omnipresence of God. I mean, is there ever a place where you get out of the purview of God? You know, when you come to this retreat, is God still looking at you? When you go back home, is God still looking at you? If you even go into outer space, you know, is God there? Yes, and he's reflecting upon this, and then he comes upon this because he's thinking, what about when I was in my mother's womb? And he said, here to God, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's a pretty powerful verse, isn't it? Because again, you reflect on the fact that here David is reflecting that God's care and compassion was even for him when he was in his mother's womb. Notice the pronouns, my, I, you know, again, it's not a piece of protoplasm that eventually becomes David, but it's David. And so you can begin to see that here David is reflecting on God's care for him while still in his mother's womb. So those would be certainly some very key ones that we could talk about. In the New Testament, you know, have John the Baptist leaping in the mother's womb and all sorts of things. So there are all sorts of ways you could probably uh, begin to argue that. Uh, one other that I thought was kind of intriguing in the Old Testament is um, a minute ago we're looking at David really reflecting upon about God's omnipresence. Now David is reflecting upon his sin. We believe that Psalm 51 was written after his sin with Bathsheba. And here he's kind of asking this question. This is from the New International Version, which I think renders the Hebrew most accurate. But you can see this in other versions as well. And here it says, Surely I've been a sinner from birth, Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now think about that one for a minute. How does that help us? Well, if you talk about a sin nature, you're talking about somebody, what? Created in the image of God. You know, we talk about if you have a sin nature, then you're a human being, right? Um, we don't really talk about the sin nature of a dog or a cat 
Although if there is such a thing, I have, uh, my daughter has two dogs at home that I am convinced have a sin nature, but nevertheless, you know, um, we are talking about uh, from the moment of conception already the Imago Dei, the image of God, the soul. You know, a lot of times people say, well, when does the soul come? Well, it seems to imply from the moment of conception you have a human being with a soul with a sin nature. Uh, as a matter of fact, in Romans you see where Paul is reflecting on the fact that I sinned in Adam. And I remember when I first read that, I said, you weren't there. I'm not there. That Adam did that a long time ago. And the idea of the sin nature is passed on. That's why we need the virgin birth, if you think about this for a minute. So again, that's another verse that uh, might be helpful. I don't know if any of you have any Jewish friends. Uh, Suzanne and I do. And one of the verses that I've always found kind of intriguing was uh, this particular verse in Exodus 21. A number of years ago, we did a debate at SMU, and um, Dr. Norm Geisler and somebody else was debating, and one of the people at the SMU Law School was Jewish, and they used this verse and pointed out that if you look at the Old Testament law code, something very interesting, because it says, if two men are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury to whom? Well, to the unborn. The offender must be fined whatever a woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, then you're to take life for life, burn for burn, what's known as the lex talionis. In other words, it means inside the womb, a child had the same legal standing as a child outside the womb. You don't have to go to Dallas Seminary, but you can look this up in any kind of uh, concordance and find out that the Hebrew word for baby inside the womb is the same word for a baby outside the womb. The Greek word for a baby inside the womb is the same word for one outside the womb. In other words, location, or as we say in legal terms, venue is irrelevant. In other words, that is a baby. So it's a pretty powerful argument if you think about that. So again, you know, you're talking to your friend and you said, well, these are some pretty good biblical arguments against abortion. Let's change our story. Let's imagine now you have a non-Christian coming up and saying, well... I don't accept your biblical arguments. Do you have any other arguments you might be able to use? And again, in uh, various debates that I've had to do over the years, I remember doing a debate at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. Uh, they had scheduled a debate uh, on abortion. I thought, who's going to come to this? Everybody sort of made up their minds. You know, oftentimes we'll speak in the classrooms and they'll speak in the evening. Um, love, sex, and dating, you know, prophecy, those draw people out. But they wanted to do a debate on abortion because the leading abortionist in the state of Arkansas was right there, Dr. Harrison. And so they said, let's schedule a debate. So I said, okay, I have no idea if anybody will show up. And I walk into a room that's about three times the size and it was wall to wall people. And I turned to somebody and said, why are they all showing up? Oh, well, the professors in the classroom said they're going to show up to give the Christian dummy a bad time. And it was hostile. And so I found myself in an environment where there were all sorts of people that were ready to pounce on me. And they flipped a coin. I lost. I went first. So I went up there, and I talked about medical arguments against abortion. And Dr. Harrison got up there from a prepared text and read from a text that said about Christians who presume to know the will of God and try to subject women's bodies according to biblical ideas. Then I got up there and I talked about legal arguments about abortion. And he got up there and uh, began to, again, from the prepared talk, text, to talk about how the Christian right is a danger in America and they're trying to lead us back to a theocracy where women no longer have control over their rights. I got up there and started talking about philosophical arguments about abortion. At this point, I noticed he started throwing papers on the floor, because what did he expect? 
that I was going to start from a biblical point of view. Could I assume that in my audience? Not at all. So what I did was I eventually got to the biblical arguments, but at the very end. But instead, I used common sense arguments, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, to really make the case for my position. And what I think we are going to have to do is recognize that that university classroom, actually more of an evening event, is really what America is becoming, right? There's a point not so long ago where you could walk into any kind of debate and say, well, this is what the Bible has to say, and people go, oh, okay. Well, that's at least one good argument. Now they're going, well, who cares? You know, the world has changed dramatically. And if you think about that, there's a real difference even than we see in the book of Acts. Remember in the book of Acts, in Acts 13, where Paul goes into a synagogue, what can he assume? Everybody in the synagogue's Jewish. They all believe in one true God. They all believe in what? Um, coming Messiah. They have old, uh, understand the Old Testament. So he sort of hits the ground running. But in Acts 17, Susanna and I just recently were there in Mars Hill, stood right there in Mars Hill, right in front of the Areopagus, you know, and the Acropolis and all of that right there. What can he assume there? They're all Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. Did they believe in the Old Testament? No, they hadn't read it. They believe in one true God? No, they had a pantheon of gods. Did they even understand who Jesus was? No, they thought these were false gods of Jesus and resurrection. As my teenage daughters used to say, they were clueless. So what's he have to do? He has to back up and really make the case. Well, that's the kind of world we're living in. There was a time when Seattle was a little bit, and you have to go way back to uh, kind of an Acts 13 world. Hey, I was born in Berkeley. I understand Seattle real well, okay? You know, but, you know, it's an Acts 17 culture now. So can we make common sense arguments for our case? I think we can. What about some of those medical arguments? Well, one of those certainly would be just uh, simply, as I made it for that debate that night, is that the embryo is genetically distinct. In his presentation, Dr. Harrison at one point said, well, you can't really draw a line. You know, sperm is alive, eggs are alive, embryos are alive, people are alive. You can't really draw a line. I said, bad biology, because you know what? Sperm and egg have 23 chromosomes, an embryo and a human being have what? 46, sometimes 47 chromosomes. I said, you could do a genetic map, a genetic karyotype, and you could show that to just a high school student in Arkansas, and he'd be able to distinguish between an egg, sperm, and a human being because of that. But you could get a genetic karyotype of a developing embryo, and then I said a genetic karyotype, a genetic map of, I picked something big, at that time was uh, Shaquille O'Neal, big uh, NBA center, and they could not tell the difference because... They're both, in one sense, genetically similar, right? So there's a very good line to draw there. Another argument I used is, you know, oftentimes we've tried to define when death occurs. And um, oftentimes we used to say that death is the cessation of heartbeat. And so if the cessation of heartbeat could be used to define death, we're going to come back to this in just a minute, could the onset of heartbeat be used to define life? Well, the heartbeat, uh, really, heart formed in the eight, first 18, 21 days, oftentimes before a woman even knows she's pregnant. Now, be well aware of the fact that that's not how we use uh, a typical criterion for death. Now we use what's known as the Harvard criteria for death. That is, if you have a flat electoral encephalograph, a flat EEG, you know, it doesn't matter whether you are just exhausted from running the 100-yard dash or you're already bored, even if you're falling asleep right now. I don't think anybody's falling asleep on me quite yet. Um, you still have an EEG going. 
But when you have a flat EEG, that's defined as what? Death. Well, if that's defined death, could the onset of an electroencephalograph, a brainwave activity, define life? That doesn't happen until later, but you can begin to see the point I'm making is we can come up with all sorts of medical arguments against abortion. People say, well, I'm not so sure what, whether there's life in the womb. Well, there's a lot of medical evidence to suggest that it is indeed a human life, which gets us to the legal arguments. And again, I don't know how many lawyers we have here, but if you go back and look at the original decision that came down on the Supreme Court in 1973, Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court basically made a decision hinged on these two sentences. They said, we need not resolve when the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at any consensus, the judiciary at this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to an answer. In other words, they said, we're really not sure if there's human life in the womb, so we will assume there is not. That violates one of the standard canons of Western jurisprudence, and that is we always place the burden of proof upon the what? Life taker. We always give the benefit of doubt to the life saver. You know, if you look at hunters around here right now, you know, if they uh, uh, see some rustling in the bushes, they're not supposed to shoot into the bush because it might be something else, a cow, a person, a dog, whatever. You know, if you um, have an accident and they take you into a hospital in Bellevue and they say, well, I'm not sure if the person's alive or dead, put them in the morgue. Do they do that? <laughs> of course not. Of course not. The burden of proof is upon what? The life taker. At one point when Dr. Harrison said, I don't know when life begins, I said, I win. So what do you mean you win? I said, if you cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt there's no life in the womb, I win by default. We also call that in criminal justice, the presumption of innocence. I have a son-in-law now. He goes to trial quite often. And there are times when in the midst of a trial, if the prosecution does not present the case, he can stand up and say, Judge, I ask for a summary judgment. The prosecution's case is unconvincing. I'm asking for a judgment. I don't even have to prove innocence. We win by default. The Supreme Court violated one of the standard principles that we use in making those decisions. Well, the point I'm making is, and again, a lot of this is in my book, which I'll talk about a little bit later, you can come up with very good arguments on this issue of abortion. And I thought for just a minute, we might also recognize that, of course, there are obviously questions that you have to still resolve. Uh, for some people will say, well, a woman has a right to control her own body. And I recognize that an, and a woman does, but that is not an absolute right. You don't have a right to use drugs, engage in prostitution. And if indeed you think there is life in the womb, you don't have a right to take that life either. Abortion should be everyone's right. Well, again, there are some very good compelling arguments only compelling if there's no life in the womb, but we've already seen quite a bit of evidence that it is. The fetus is mere tissue and not a person. Well, we just looked at a lot of those Old Testament verses, if nothing else, that talk about the fact that it's a human being. And um, abortion is the best solution to a crisis pregnancy. Suzanne will tell you I probably have spoken at more pregnancy resource center banquets than anything else, crisis center banquets, and we would certainly want to say that there are are individuals that find themselves in a crisis pregnancy, but I think there is a solution, and that solution is to save that life. Put it up for adoption. There are many, many couples that would want to adopt it. And I'm not trying to be cavalier, but I am saying that if you want to understand what life in the womb is all about, you can really begin to understand that we should begin to think biblically about those ideas. 
And so I think even as your own church, maybe you might begin to consider what you might do to help people be involved in the pro-life movement uh, and certainly be praying about this very important issue and even talk about the giving to financial organizations that are involved in this and uh, maybe partner with your local pregnancy resource center. I go to a church where we have actually a church has its own pregnancy center and has been able to save thousands of babies. It's pretty exciting to have them march forward and then uh, be baptized in the church. You know, yet later on as they grow up and as they become Christians, you'll say, there but for the pregnancy center, they would not be there actually becoming members of the church or uh, certainly children of other members who do as well. So there are just a lot of things that we can be involved with, and I just hope that you might think about what you might do in your own community uh, to joint venture or to encourage people uh, to join with a crisis pregnancy center because that's certainly a very significant um, opportunity and ministry. Not only a great way to save babies, it is amazing how many of these pregnancy centers save souls. Remember Larry Moyer of Evantel? Uh, we were talking about that with him the other day, and June Hunt, uh, both of them very much involved in training um, these individuals at these pregnancy resource centers to do evangelism. It is amazing, you know, because I can't think of a pregnancy resource center banquet I've come to where we haven't not only talked about all the babies that were saved, but about a number of people that became Christians. Because nothing like a crisis, you hit bottom, all you can do is look up. It's kind of interesting if you think about it. What's the goal of a pregnancy center? It's to save babies, but it also saves souls. It reminds me of Jews for Jesus. You know, Moish Rosen, who grew up in San Francisco area, was around him. He points out that Jews for Jesus actually leads more Gentiles to the Lord than they lead Jews to the Lord. And he says, what do you want me to do, throw them back? You know, and the same thing, you know, the goal here is to save babies, but it also is one of the more effective evangelistic outreaches in America. So something else to think about. Let's keep it moving. We're going to keep that train moving down the road. And the next thing is, is we've already talked about abortion, but it relates to a very important political issue we've been talking about here in America, and that's the issue of stem cell research. It turns out that uh, we have stem cells that are actually very, very useful. And these stem cells, interestingly enough, are called stem cells because just like the stem of a plant can give you fruit and leaves and pollen and all sorts of things, so a stem cell can produce the many kinds of cells in our bodies and in other uh, particular creatures. And so they can be used in very effective ways to begin to treat and cure diseases. Now, the debate is oftentimes muddled because we have, first of all, what are called adult stem cells. And by that, we mean that they are differentiated. You have adult stem cells in your body right now. You have them in your bone marrow. You have some in your nasal passages. Matter of fact, we have some in our fat cells. And matter of fact, if we ever wanted to treat you, we can take out the fat cells, get the stem cells, and treat you, which I think is a double plus, right? Take out the fat and, you know, treat you. So that's a good thing. And there are really no uh, moral questions about adult stem cell research. And these are being used even by some of the staff members at Pro Ministries right now uh, that have been used on them as well. Because after all, they're using your stem cells and using them to treat you and develop whatever they might need to develop. But there's another kind of stem cells, and those are what are called embryonic stem cells. They're found in the developing embryos before they become differentiated. If you go in there and take those stem cells out, you kill the embryo. So that raises the same kind of moral questions as abortion. The other problem with it is, is that it also, interestingly enough, because we can't really control it, most of them sort of just run wild. 
Uh, there was some research that was done, for example, in China, where they tried to use these embryonic stem cells, and they just developed what are called teratomas, these, these, uh, these tumors that they take out, and they would have fingernails and heart cells and liver cells, and just like something out of a science fiction thing. So, number one, they raise very significant moral questions, just like abortion does, but number two, we, they haven't been quite as effective. But this is why there has been such a debate about them, because the scientists hope someday to use those in an effective way to treat and cure diseases. The political issues were kind of interesting because many years ago there was a real debate about what we would do and George W. Bush first addressed those and uh, one option could be that you could prohibit embryonic stem cell research. That was not going to happen because we have abortion legal in this country. You can destroy embryos for any reason or no reason at all. The other idea was to close off federal funding, which is not what the president chose. He opted instead for partial funding of existing stem cell lines. Well, then when you move from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, they wanted to move further in terms of the funding of the creation of embryonic stem cells. And eventually, I think we're moving to the full funding of research. And you can see how that is a political debate, which we can talk about more later on. But again, it illustrates how many of these discussions that are taking place, even having various initiatives and referendum that you vote for, even in the state of Washington, relate back to some of these very important medical issues. Um, I think I'll just skip that in the interest of time to get on to our next topic, and that is to move from this idea of personhood and the beginning of life to a very difficult one, and perhaps one that is perhaps the most vexing of all issues we're going to talk about this afternoon, and that is the issue of personhood at the end of life. We've got to recognize that there has been a real push for euthanasia for some time. We saw that in the Netherlands, we've seen it in Oregon, now we've seen it in Washington, California, and other places. Uh, this all the way goes back to the Greeks. Euthanasia is the idea of good death, and so you had the Greeks uh, promoting this idea that in some cases it would be most compassionate to put someone to death. Uh, then because of that, there was the development of the Hippocratic Oath which isn't used as much in medical schools as it was in the past. It is used, still interesting in some medical schools, oftentimes more Christian-based medical schools, but the Hippocratic Oath says you would not give a pessary to uh, uh, give a woman an abortion and all sorts. You would not give strong drink uh, to end life. And so it was the idea that we want doctors to only be having one goal, that's to save life. My grandfather was a doctor, and his goal was in every case to save a life. He never even thought about the fact that there would be a time when he would be forced to decide which lives to save. He never did an abortion, never thought about putting someone to death. He sometimes recognized he came to the limit of what he could do medically, but uh, he recognized that the single goal of a doctor was to save life. Most people go into medicine for that reason. They go into nursing and uh, uh, various kinds of medical care for that very reason. But, of course, there has been a real push to try to legalize euthanasia. You have the Euthanasia Society of England. You have the Hemlock Society in this country. And, of course, many of you might even remember Dr. Jack Kevorkian and others. And so you find yourself today in a culture where we're now telling at least some people in the medical profession, your goal is to save life, but in some cases maybe you need to take life. And that's, I think, caused a great tension let's, if we can, kind of understand that some of this comes from theology. Some of this comes from philosophy. And we can begin to see how if you really begin to redefine what a person is, 
then it opens the door for some things that you would never have imagined. Let's go back to the Supreme Court decision. There were two comments that the Supreme Court made. Number one, we just looked at that. They were not going to decide when life begins. But they also argue that since the 14th Amendment only protects persons, they basically argued that a human being is not a person. And once you walk down that road, that's where we ran ourselves into difficulty. Because you have, for example, in the British science journal Nature, uh, Francis Crick. Everybody remember who he is? He's a co-discoverer of the structure of DNA. He pointed out that if a child were considered legally born when two days old, it could be examined to see whether it was an acceptable member of human society. So you can see that he's starting to say, well, you know, this argument for abortion also could be really an argument for infanticide. If I didn't know there was a defect inside the womb, when I see the def defect outside the womb, can I just simply leave the child over there and let it die? See where that argument comes from? And even when I began to study this, I began to realize that every argument for abortion becomes an argument for all sorts of other medical procedures. Well, then you have Ashley Montague, who is a cultural anthropologist, and he said that a newborn baby is really not truly human, or now he probably would say he's not truly a person until he or she is molded by cultural influences later on. In a column I wrote for the Dallas Morning News, I said, you know, I was being a little bit sarcastic, this could be an argument for the elimination of anybody who's not read the great books of the Western world, if you think about how bizarre this particular argument is. But perhaps one of the most significant is when I was at Georgetown University, I also took classes over at the Kennedy Institute of Bioethics. And one of our required texts was from Joseph Fletcher. Now, some of you that are a little bit older, that is, people that have gray hair or no hair at all, okay, so some of you, you might remember the name Joseph Fletcher, don't you? Situation ethics, remember? Uh, the idea that ethics is sometimes right or wrong, depends on the situation. Well, he wrote a book called Personhood to really kind of establish this as sort of a legal philosophical precedent. And he said, humans without some minimum level of intelligence or mental capacities are not persons, no matter how many of these organs are active. And so he's using this to say, well, you know, if somebody's comatose, you know, we could pull the plug. Uh, you know, if they don't have some minimum level of intelligence, maybe they have Down syndrome, maybe they've got some other kind of defect, we'll just simply not treat them as persons. You know, it's one thing to flunk a test, it's another thing to flunk out of life. But you can see where these ideas are heading if we as Christians don't address those from a biblical point of view. Because we're really moving from a time where we believed in the sanctity of human life, that all individuals are valuable because they're created in the image of God. No matter whether you're tall or short, not whether you're good-looking or not so good-looking, not whether you're smart, not so smart, everybody has value and dignity. Why? Because as Christians, we believe, and as a culture up until recently, we as a culture believe that what? We believed in the sanctity of human life. But now we're kind of moving into this idea of the quality of life, where we're saying, well, you know, that person might not have good quality of life, so maybe... They should not be, you know, kept alive. Maybe they should not be allowed to reproduce. Those ideas have been around for a long time. You can go back to Margaret Sanger. You can go back even to Charles Darwin, some of the writings there. You can go back to uh, the Euthanasia Society and the Eugenic Society and many others about that. But we're starting to see how that's playing itself out. 
So how do we see this in this whole question of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide? Well, real quickly, I'm going to go through kind of different kinds of euthanasia, voluntary passive euthanasia, voluntary active euthanasia, which is in your handout, involuntary passive euthanasia, as well as involuntary active euthanasia. The first is oftentimes called euthanasia, but it's really not truly euthanasia. It's voluntary and it's passive. It's where you might get to a point where you say, you know, maybe I've, um, I've got stage four cancer and I just say, I'm not going to go through more any more chemotherapy. Uh, maybe I'm in a hospital and I put on my chart, no code heart. You know, if I have a heart attack, don't try to resuscitate me. In a sense, what you're talking about here is you're simply allowing nature to take its course. I don't really call that euthanasia, but lots of times people do because they say, well, you allow that, but see how the game's getting played. This is something that we recognize. Sometimes we're just at the very limit of what we can do to save a life. And so in this case, we focus on things like hospice care, palliative care, and we try as much as possible to uh, maybe address some of those issues that an individual might uh, have to address both legally as well as in terms of pain management. But that is not truly euthanasia. But lots of times it gets molded into this and it gets real fuzzy. So people say, well, you allow people to die, so why can't you then, of course, go in the other direction and begin to take a life? And that moves from voluntary passive euthanasia to voluntary what? Active euthanasia. This is where something is done to hasten death. And I would make a distinction between mercy dying and mercy killing. Allowing nature to take its course is very different than what? Advancing or doing something to really begin to put a person to death. At the same time, I'll recognize that there's sometimes a secondary effect. Here's a good example. When my mother was dying of bone cancer, in those very last days, we gave her some pretty powerful shots of morphine. Now, we recognize that there may have been a secondary effect. We were there to treat the pain. But in so doing, we also recognize that there's a secondary effect where it probably shortened respiration. So by giving shots of morphine to deal with the pain, we may have ended her life a few days early, but that's very different than going to a doctor and saying, kill me. Do you see the difference? And so I recognize it fuzzes up a little bit, but it isn't that much. But what we have today is sort of this mindset that we're almost saying that patients have a duty to die uh, because of some of these new laws and regulations. Kind of like, well, you know, you're just taking up a hospital bed. And you almost have some individuals, if you go in these hospitals, almost like apologizing because they're still alive. And so that's why I have real concerns about this so-called voluntary active euthanasia. Then you have what's called involuntary passive euthanasia, where they'll say, well, the person's comatose, they can't express their will, and so in some cases it uh, is an act of omission. And these are some of these famous cases, like um, Karen Ann Quinlan and Nancy Cruzan and Terry Schiavo. In many cases they say, well, we're just allowing nature to take, their, take, the course, take its course, but the bottom line is oftentimes they're removing a feeding tube. You know what, if I don't feed you, what happens? You die. So I think they really are oftentimes presenting this as allowing nature to take its course. But in some cases, of course, what's being withheld are the kinds of things that would indeed uh, keep an individual alive. And oftentimes the key issue is motive. You know, you go into these and um, when someone else is 
providing that information? Are they doing that because they don't want Aunt Sally to go through any more uh, difficulty, or are they doing it because they want to get the inheritance? And motives are very important at this point, and this is why I'm real concerned about some of the laws that have been implemented. Then you get to things like involuntary active euthanasia, where we had, in some cases, these so-called baby does. You know, they'd be born and they'd have a genetic defect, and they'd say, well, let's just set them over there and just allow them to die. And uh, Dr. Everett Koop, uh, who was our Surgeon General many years ago, said that nothing surprises me anymore. Uh, the great concern is there'll be 10,000 grandma does for every baby doe. And at a time when we have a real change in our health care system, you've got to wonder where that's going to lead. So again, how do we describe that? What kind of policy would we want to have? Well, I think from a biblical point of view, we really want to begin to say we want to err on the side of life. So what is a biblical definition of death? Well, scriptures talk about the fact that death, it says this in Ecclesiastes, that the body returns to the dust from which it's made and the soul returns to God. In the book of James, it says, just as the body without the soul is dead, so faith without works is dead. So obviously, a biblical definition of death is when the soul leaves the body. Well, I don't know about you, but we've never invented a spirit scope so we can look at you and see, is there a spirit in there? It's a little bit tough, but I think what it would suggest is we would want to err on the side of life. When we don't know, let's be careful. There are all sorts of stories of individuals that have been in a coma, and then they've come out of the coma. The one I reported about the other day in one of my commentaries, this woman came out of a coma and met the 18-year-old daughter she had given birth to and then went into a coma 18 years before. Isn't that an incredible story? Uh, but uh, nevertheless, there are very unbelievable situations, and that's why, if anything, when we start talking about physician-assisted death, sometimes the arguments are these individuals are depressed, so this is why we need to end their life. But if nothing else, I think we have to recognize as we look at what has happened in the Netherlands, and now we're starting to collect stories out of Oregon and now California and other places, uh, we find a number of individuals that simply are fearful of the medical profession. In my book, uh, Christian Ethics in Plain Language, on my chapter on euthanasia, I point out that you know, a lot of old people in the Netherlands don't like to go to doctors because they have stories of individuals that have been denied medical treatment without their consent, some killed without their consent. And so it is certainly understandable that uh, individuals would be fearful. How do we think this through? Well, on the one hand, I think we want to recognize that we do certainly understand that every life is valuable. We just looked at those verses from the issue of abortion. But on the other hand, as Christians, we look at that and recognize that death is what? Great gain. To be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. I mean, if you read uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, for example, Paul is just talking about, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Death is great gain. I mean, it's kind of like a, a coin flip, you know. He's just like, okay, I'm alive, great. And if I'm dead, that's fine, even better, actually. I mean, and that, so we recognize that there may be times where we could say as Christians, I don't want to go to extraordinary means to try to save my life. I don't want to go to extraordinary lives to save my grandmother, my mother. So I think those are permitted. Uh, but at the same time, we certainly recognize that we're instituting these kinds of policies that are actually going to end the lives of individuals that maybe shouldn't. One of the people I get to speak with pretty frequently on the medical issues is Johnny Erickson Tata. Anybody know who she is? 
And here's an individual that uh, said, you know, when I had a high cervical neck break and I was now recognizing that I will be a quadriplegic for the rest of my life, if I had, could find a physician who would assist me in suicide, if I could find a Dr. Kevorkian, I would have killed myself. Would the Christian world have missed something if she had killed herself? I think the answer to that is obvious. Now, I'll be the first one to say there are some really complex issues that we've got to address in the world, and one of those simply is that sometimes I don't have great answers. You know, when my father was dying of Alzheimer's, you know, and didn't even kind of know who I was, even at the end, he remembered me as that nice man from Texas. He didn't think I was his son, but he still remembered me as a nice man from Texas. But, you know, I don't really have a great answer for all that. I know that he was not the man he used to be, but I know one thing. I didn't have a permission to go kill him simply because his life wasn't quite the same as it was before. And so I think that's the kind of way we need to think through some of our issues here. So, again, just to recognize this, we can look at um, these uh, biblical perspectives. And uh, this has managed to lock up. So give me just two seconds to see why it locked itself up. And there we go. Uh, recognize that in some cases, we've got to think about this from a biblical point of view. Is it ever permissible to take a life? Well, I think there are a few examples of that. Uh, we do have um, certainly just war. Matter of fact, last time I was with you, I remember Joe asking me all sorts of questions about the just war theory. So I remember, remember that because, again, I get all sorts of tough questions when I come to living hope. I don't know what it is, but, you know, these are always tough questions. So that's the case. And self-defense a capital punishment, but even there, some Christians have one. But we certainly don't say that the right to die, because the right to die would be kind of what? The right to commit suicide. Does the Bible ever talk about suicide in a positive way? You think about Saul falling on his sword. Think about, think about Judas. What's he do? Go out and hang himself? Those are never really presented in a positive way. So I think we need to come back and whatever we do, recognize that we are moving to a time where we're more willing to move from this sanctity of human life to the quality of life kind of issues. With that, uh, in order to end us on time here, I want to get into one more area of issues, and that is this new area of bioengineering. I'm going to cover just a couple real quickly, but again, you can find more on our website, and there are in some of the books that we'll make available. But the first is just this whole area of genetic engineering, because we do have a phenomenal ability now uh, through genetic counseling and gene splicing and a variety of other things uh, to begin to significantly affect the medical procedures we used to have before. One of those is known as gene splicing, or called DNA recombinant research, and that's where you simply take the genetic material from a particular individual, in this case a human cell, we put it into the plasmid, which is part of the DNA there, and so now you have a bacterium that actually is producing something with human DNA. Now, a good example of that is, is that it used to be that if you were a diabetic, you would get the insulin from the pancreases of cows or sheep. But now we actually have these bacteria that produce human DNA, uh, human insulin, and so as a result, the possibility of rejection is much less. So we have this ability now to gen genetically splice all sorts of things together. And so that is certainly a tremendous benefit in being able to treat and cure various diseases. 
And so we're seeing that is a tremendous benefit in terms of its uh, use. Its agricultural benefits, we're now finding all sorts of different ways to uh, genetically modify organisms. But of course, that's been a real controversial issue here in the state of Washington has it as well, genetically modified food. But certainly, even if you look at just in terms of improving the efficiency of photosynthesis or the tolerance to drought would allow you to grow crops in places that presently are not arable. Uh, then all sorts of industrial processes and things of that nature. So lots of great benefits in the area of genetic engineering. But there are some great social concerns because now we can begin to genetically modify just about anything. And I just mentioned one, the whole issue of genetically modified food. But what about the idea of genetically modified human beings? Because after all, isn't that at least a possibility? You ever read Brave New World? You know, you have alphas and betas and gammas, you know. You, you could actually begin to say this would be a really social change that we never saw before. And raising all sorts of ethical questions as well of being able to breed a human race. Or maybe say, you know, I'd like to have my son that would actually be um, a really good basketball player. And so maybe we can get some Michael Jordan genes and put it in him. Or maybe I would like him to be a great musician, a Yo-Yo Ma jeans, or whatever it might be. You know, you can begin to think about all sorts of ethical questions, but most importantly, some of these theological questions as well, because now we're talking about how this could affect things like the sanctity of human life, um, or even just the need to recognize that we might be creating things that we could not control. Has that ever happened before? Just think about this. Um, we, um, in the state of Texas, had an oil spill, and actually you might have heard about the one that BP had in Louisiana. Did you hear about that? Okay, even up here you probably heard. And so when you have these oil spills, what they do now is they drop these genetically engineered bugs, these pseudomonas down, they just fly them into helicopters, and they just gobble up all the oil on the water. And so that reduces the effect of the oil spill. So we've got little oil-eating bugs that have been genetically modified. What if the oil-eating bug doesn't know any difference between oil on the water and oil in your gas tank? Can you see how that would be a real significant change, you know? Um, we have, for example, right now at Probe, have two interns from Australia. Well, have you ever seen the stories of Australia when they, for example, introduced rabbits into Australia but didn't have natural predators? Or if you've ever been to Hawaii, we had the rats get off the ships and ate all the eggs of all the exotic bird eggs. Or here, the spruce budworm. Uh, the gypsy moth, you know, you can see what has happened when we've had an existing organism and we now have placed it in a new environment. Imagine when we've created a new organism. And so how to think this through? Well, I think we still want to come back to these issues of the sanctity of human life. But here's another one, the natural limits to biological change. If you read in Genesis, uh, for example, what does it say in Genesis 1? It talks about the fact that here it uh, is, is giving us an idea that indeed it says, be fruitful and multiply and let the waters of the sea and the birds of the air multiply. There was evening and morning in the fifth day. And it talks about then that there were all sorts of uh, uh, creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And so there was a created kind. There were natural limits to biological change. 
There's a dog kind. You've got everything from a dachshund to a Great Dane. There's a cat kind, you know, a tabby and a calico and all sorts of things. But there's not a dog-cat hybrid, whatever you call that, a dad or a cog or whatever you call those kind of things, you know. But now we're able to completely jump over those barriers. One of the books that we've published at Pro Ministries is The Natural Limits to Biological Change. It's a very good argument for intelligent design, but it also recognizes that now we can begin to bridge those natural barriers, those God-given barriers. As a matter of fact, one of these individuals said, you know, with genetic engineering, we can rewrite the fifth and sixth days of creation. Pretty bold, isn't it? Because they say, you know, we can now be God. Do we have the moral integrity to act like it? So again, my argument is, is that I think what we are talking about here is the quest for genetic perfection. If you've never seen the movie Gattaca, maybe if somebody's really interested, I've got some clips from it, you know, which we could show at another time and hook up the audio for it. But again, the premise is, is again, one of the sons was formed accidentally, the old-fashioned way, but the other was the new improved way. And so you begin to see how there was a difference in the society and the view and this idea of genetic perfection. And so we certainly can recognize the value of treating and cure genetic diseases. That's part of the cultural mandate, the dominion covenant. When Genesis 1, uh, we are told to go out and subdue the earth, to have dominion over the earth, we can use medical technology to treat and cure diseases. Um, certainly nobody here probably has smallpox, cholera, typhus. Um, one of our staff members have polio, but virtually no one else. So you can see how we have done that with medical technology. But that's very different than a philosophy that says, no, we just need to begin to genetically perfect human beings. See, if you start from a humanist point of view and say that everything we see around us is a result of mass, energy, chance, and time, then certainly intelligent scientists can do a better job than millions of years of evolution. You see where that mindset comes from? But if instead you say we're created in the image of God, then we need to be accountable to God as well. What about cloning? <laughs> kind of interesting. You know, down at Texas A&M right now, we can clone your dog, we can clone your horse, Never cloned a human being, but what about that? Again, it's a pretty simple process, actually. It's a little more difficult to achieve, but you have a donor egg up here. You remove the nucleus. Then you fuse it with the egg from the other person you want, and it tricks it into thinking it's fertilized, and then you end up with a cloned baby that is genetically identical to another. You might say, well, why would we want to clone human beings? Oh, all sorts of reasons. Same-sex marriage, we're going to talk about that tonight. Same-sex couples and everything want to have their child. And so that would be a way that you could have a one that is actually genetically related to both. One of the debates I was supposed to have at Vanderbilt University was with a professor. The debate got called off, and I wish it hadn't because Dr. Pierre Steptoe had actually at that time been using female mouse eggs, fusing them together, and he was having a way in which women, female mice, could reproduce and have a child that was genetically, a baby mouse basically, um, related to it. But I'm jumping ahead because the idea was to be able to take an egg from one female lesbian, an egg from another lesbian, fuse it together. It would always be a girl that would be genetically related to both of the women in the lesbian relationship. Is that pretty odd? 
It's uh, going to get more crazy in just a minute, but you can kind of see where that takes you very quickly in terms of the kind of technology we're developing as well. Actually, if that was completely developed, then women could just continually reproduce themselves, and men would, I guess they'd just watch football. I don't know what they'd do. It wouldn't even be necessary anymore. <laughs> Uh, but also the source of organ transplants, you know, uh, the idea that this would be a way to have organs. Has there ever been a movie like that? Well, if you haven't seen this one, you know, there you go, Evan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson in the island, and they discover, interestingly enough, that they're actually clones of people outside, and they're just being kept alive so that they can provide the spare parts for those others. Again, a dystopia, but it's just a reminder of all the bizarre things we have. I think I'll interest, uh, in the interest of time, I'll skip that one real quickly and just simply come back to, again, some first principles. You know, we're created in the image of God. We have value and dignity, and that's certainly the case. But we're also distinct from animals. You know, we can use genetic engineering to actually dramatically increase the genetic fitness of animals. Uh, next week when we get back home, we're going to go to the Texas State Fair. Always love to go to the Texas State Fair. Always love to see all the animals there. Well, that's one thing, but you know, if you see no distinction between humans and animals, if all we are are just more evolved creatures, then whatever you do for an animal, you could do for a human being. It's really dangerous. You know, when we have an overpopulation of deer here in the state of Washington, what do we do? Issue a hunting license, right? Just kill them off to the carrying capacity. What if we have an overpopulation of human beings? If we have, you know, genetic engineering for animals, See the problem? If we don't come back to these first biblical principles of being created in the image of God, there's really danger, and also the danger of usurping the role of the Creator. Finally, let me talk just for a second about artificial reproduction, and that is we have you know, all sorts of new things that are being developed, and uh, some of those relate to a variety of different areas. But again, uh, one of those, which I'll look at just in the interest of time, is in vitro fertilization, where again you remove the eggs and fertilize them in a petri dish. They're called petri dish babies or uh, test tube babies. Incubate them and implant them in a womb. So again, you have all sorts of possibilities that can be developed. You know, the social concerns um, are certainly when we talk about um, what happens when in some particular cases we um, go outside of the marriage bond. It's one thing to take the sperm of the eggs, uh, sperm of the husband, eggs of the wife, and always implant them. But what if you begin to have a surrogate mother? You ever heard of these surrogate mothers? Of course, we've had some of those. And so all sorts of ethical questions begin to surface. I mentioned Australia. One of the biggest ones that we talked about a number of years ago is where Mr. and Mrs. Rios went to an in vitro fertilization clinic in Melbourne, Australia. They selected a couple of her eggs, fertilized all three of them, implanted one, froze the other two. Well, she miscarried, and before they could implant the other two, Mr. and Mrs. Rios were killed in a plane crash. It caused two very important questions to surface. Number one, do those frozen embryos have a right to life? More importantly, do those frozen embryos have a right to inheritance? Mr. and Mrs. Rios were multi-millionaires. They had made millions of dollars in real estate in California. Well, Australia had talked about even coming up with a rescue operation. So let's think this through. You had Mr. Rios, Mrs. Rios. Turns out they used an anonymous sperm donor, so you had an anonymous sperm donor, that then they were going to put those eggs into a surrogate mother who would then give the child up for an adoption to two other, quote, parents. That's at least four and as many six, quote, parents. 
Now let me ask you some of these theological questions here for just a minute. Who theologically is the father and who is the mother? I have not a clue. I have no clue at all because all the scriptures are based upon the assumption that a child is born is genetically related to the father and mother, except, of course, of cases of adoption like that. I mean, you can begin to see how complex it gets. What if the child is born with genetic defects? Could they sue for defective materials? Well, we um, had a case that kind of developed a little bit like that. We actually had two. First of all, what if the surrogate mother decides to keep the child? And that has to do with Mary Beth Whitehead and William and Elizabeth Stern, and that was in New Jersey where they had contracted with her as a surrogate mother, and the inevitable maternal feelings happened, and she wanted to keep the child. And so Mr. and Mrs. Stern, Elizabeth Stern, William and Elizabeth Stern, went to court, and in the New Jersey court, they had to issue basically an opinion that came to be known as the Solomon Dilemma. Remember the ancient King Solomon? The difference is they don't issue swords in the uh, New Jersey court here, and finally decided that she was allowed to keep the child, but they could have visitation rights. What about defective materials? Well, that's a little bit different. There was a woman out of Michigan who actually gave birth to a child that had microcephaly and a staph infection, and neither the surrogate mother nor the donor couple wanted the child. So they had to go to court to deal with that particular issue. It just gets more and more complex. And then what about those ones that are babies frozen on ice? Because you have about 100,000 frozen embryos in America. These are uh, oftentimes when they give birth, they call them snowflake babies. Well, last time I went and spoke at Baylor Law School, it was over one of these cases in Tennessee. That is, this couple had had a child then they had frozen some embryos. They were now divorced, and the woman wanted to go and get her frozen embryos to have another baby. But the father went to court because he didn't want to have to pay child support for a baby he did not produce. You see where we are on that? And so there was a real important set of questions about what about those legal issues. And so I referred to it as a Lego My Egos case, um, which, uh, again, was one of those that had to be resolved because of all of the moral and legal and, most importantly, theological issues that surface. So how do we think through this? Well, it seems to me that, first of all, if we have a principle of the sanctity of human life, then it seems to me that if indeed you do use artificial insemination, that you use, first of all, just the husband's sperm, the wife's eggs, and you implant all the embryos. That gets rid of all the other questions. But, you know, you've had these cases where they'll do hyperfertilization and destroy those. Well, it raises some of the same moral questions that uh, abortion raises. And the other part of this, and for some reason this didn't show all of the moral integrity of the family, so I need to move that over so you can see the rest of the part of that there. Um, we'll cancel it for now. But anyway, the moral integrity of the family. And that was simply that uh, we need to also come and recognize about uh, the family issues involved there as well. And the biggest and most important one has to do with if you start bringing a third party into the pregnancy, you have all sorts of problems. Did we ever have any examples of that in the Bible? Can you think of Abraham and Sarah? They used the best artificial reproductive technology of the day where they brought, what, a third party into the pregnancy. How did that turn out? You know, not so good. You know, as uh, Dr. Phil says, how's that working for you? 
Wasn't working very well, was it? You know? Matter of fact, the conflict in the Middle East goes all the way back to that. I think you're back to some really important issues. One last one just to think about. I know some of you work in the area of mental health, and now we're developing all sorts of new things in the area of neuroethics. And that is that we actually have developed some ways to begin to suppress certain kinds of memories. Well, that may be helpful if an individual is dealing with PTSD, but how far do we go to suppress those memories? Maybe you've seen the movie Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And now we're starting to work in this whole area of what we can do with the brain and what we can do with memories and all those kinds of things. If you're working in this area, we've done an entire week of radio programs on biblical principles related to neuroethics and all the neurophysiological issues that we're going to have to address here in the 21st century. If nothing else, when I speak on some of this, I say to the seminary students, Welcome to the 21st century. There was a time when we didn't talk about those kinds of things at Dallas Theological Seminary, but this is the world that we find ourselves in today. So if you'd like to maybe study a little bit more of this, let me just mention that um, one of the books that I've made available in the past, and I'm sure that uh, Pastor Joe has one, but I'm going to make sure other staff members have it as well, is my book, Christian Ethics in Plain Language where just the first four chapters on the application, it has a few chapters just on philosophy and everything, but then when it goes into applying biblical principles, it has chapters on abortion, euthanasia, genetic engineering, and artificial reproduction. Plus, Dr. Ray Bolan, myself, and others on our staff are writing about all of these issues. So if you go to the website probe.org, you will see all sorts of articles on different medical issues, as well as many other things we'll talk about this weekend. And uh, it's just our attempt to try in this new world that we find ourselves in, taking the changeless scriptural principles to a changing world. And so welcome to the 21st century.